types of datus or elements in his teaching. And last time we covered the 18 elements and then the six, physic, six elements or physical elements, space and consciousness, and then the six elements related to feeling, to bathing. Okay, now we come to another classification of elements. This time the principle of classification are types of thoughts. The word Datu has a fairly wide range of meaning. So these are the different types of thoughts that arise in the mind, particularly considered from you might call an ethical point of view or a spiritual point of view. What kind of thoughts are conducive to spiritual development? What kind of thoughts are destructive to one's moral and spiritual development? We could say that just as the physical world is made up of the four material elements, so we could say the mental world, the world of the mind, is made up of different types of thoughts. These are the basic constituents. Actually, in the physical world, there are only four primary elements. In the mental world, there are probably hundreds and thousands of little of basic elements that make up the functioning of the mind. But out of these hundreds or thousands of mental elements, the Buddha has selected six which he gives, to which he gives special prominence by calling them the elements of thought. And in the way they're set out in the text, they're laid out as three pairs of opposites. Let's put these on the board. Okay, the <coughs> the first contrasting pair is the sensual desire element and the renunciation element. Okay, the sensual desire element would be thoughts which are concerned with sensual desire. Desire for the experience, enjoyment of any kind of sense object. And then the antidote to that, the remedy for that, is the thought of renunciation. The thought of giving up or relinquishing sensual enjoyment. In fact, the word which in Pali, which is rendered renunciation, it actually can have two derivations. Nekama, yeah, the way it's usually explained in Pali is as a noun based on the verb nikamati, 
which means to go out from, to renounce, to give up. And so they speak about the Buddha's great renunciation, they call it the Maha Abhi Nekama, the great going forth, great renunciation, because he goes out and leaves the palace and gives up all of his royal royal privileges. But we could also take Nekama on another derivation, it could also be taken from Nish, this prefix Nish, which means without, it's a just negation of karma, of sensual enjoyment. So on this derivation it means simply giving up sensual enjoyment. <coughs> and the natural tendency of the human mind is because of ignorance, saradija, is to seek enjoyment and sense pleasure. So people are always pursuing enjoyable forms of the eye, enjoyable sounds, beautiful music, delightful scents, tantalizing taste, soft, flexible touch sensations. And yet all of this pursuit of sensual enjoyment is the play of tanha or craving. And when that craving springs into the mind or arises in the mind, then it generates thoughts concerned with acquiring and enjoying sense objects. Those are sensual thoughts, kama vipaka. And since those thoughts are one kind of element that makes up the mental process, they're called the element of sensual desire. To develop the Buddhist path, one has to overcome this sensual craving, attachment to sense objects, and one does this by developing the opposite kind of thought. This is the thought of renunciation. And one develops the thought of renunciation by, one doesn't just think, let me renounce, let me renounce, let me renounce, but one develops this thought by trying to investigate and to perceive what is called the adinava, the danger or the unsatisfactoriness in sensual enjoyment. One investigates to see that to obtain the objects of sensual pleasure requires much toil and strain and struggle. To have a beautiful house, nice furniture, beautiful wife, nice hi-fi, high fidelity. Do they have high fidelity equipment anymore? Maybe I'm still in the 1970s. <laughs> nice CD player, I'm sorry. Hi-fi is the thing of the past. <laughs> uh, to go out to nice restaurants and have delicious cuisine, all of this requires much trouble. Then when one obtains the objects of sense pleasure, then really it's that cause a, a constant anxiety, stress, um, worry, 
jealousy, envy, competitiveness, clinging, mind is clinging to them, fear of losing them. And then when one loses the objects one is attached to, or when one fails to get what one wants, then there comes sorrow, grief, lamentation. <coughs> one could investigate the dangers and sense pleasures from many different angles. But when one does this repeatedly, then one sees that the objects one has been attached to, the things one has been pursuing so avidly with such intensity that it's all just a trap, a deceptive trap. Maybe one could even call it a death trap <laughs> because it keeps one bound to the wheel of birth and death, the cycle of becoming. And so when one reflects on the dangers, the unsatisfactoriness and sense pleasure, then there arises this thought of getting free from them, desire to be liberated from them. That is the thought of renunciation. When that thought becomes strong enough, then one is able to give up more and more. First of all, even while living the household life, if one really is committed to this idea of detachment or renunciation, one should try to live simply, to be content with little, to find happiness within oneself, not an external thing. And when that thought becomes very powerful and one is free from any external obstacles, then one can just leave the household life and become a monk or a nun. <laughs> That's why the act of going forth, pabhaja, it's also called nekama, going forth or renunciation. Okay, second is the thought of ill will. This in Pali is called vyapada. This is another word, for, another term for hatred or aversion, particularly as a wrong thought, <coughs> a bad element of the mind, its aversion directed towards other people. But also sometimes aversion or ill will can be directed towards inanimate objects. This also is one of the main causes of strife, contention, and conflict in the world, the thought of ill will between different individuals, different social groups, different ethnic groups, different countries. Because people are different, sometimes they do things in different ways, the color of the skin might be different, the languages might be different, the physical dwelling places might be different, the regions where they live. And so people, based on these differences, give rise to thoughts of suspicion, um, suspicion, uneasiness, resentment, antagonism, which eventually lead to these thoughts of strong aversion or ill will. 
And when these thoughts become strong enough in a collective unit, then we have social conflict, ethnic conflict, war, national wars, international wars. And according to Buddhism, the remedy for the thought of ill will is the thought of what is called rather colorlessly in Pali, upyabhada, non-ill will. But in Pali and Sanskrit, it's a common practice to represent positive qualities by the negation of their opposite. So what is called non-ill will really can mean the thought of for people, in the case of people, the thought of loving-kindness. So to overcome the thought of ill-will in regard to other people, then one reflects on the fact that these people who are different from ourselves, even though they might have the skin a different color, the nose a different shape, the hair cut differently, the clothes, style of clothing might be different, They might be living in different countries, but one reflects that these people are just human beings like myself, that they're afraid of pain, that they enjoy happiness and pleasure, that they are afraid of death, that they want to live. You can think that they are children of parents who love them and look after them with care. One could think that they have brothers and sisters just as I have, well, I don't, just as I have a sister, you might have brothers and sisters. You might think they have parents, they have children, and they love their children. And so really they are basically the same as oneself. And so in this way one can overcome these thoughts of ill will by reflecting on the similarity of others to oneself. And when one reflects in this way, then there will arise a thought of identification with others, seeing that they are so similar to oneself that there's no reason at all for any ill will or antagonism. And when one considers even further that these people want to be free from pain and to enjoy happiness and security, then one can develop the thought of metta, of loving-kindness, wishing that they will be well and happy and free from all types of harm. Okay, but there's not only um, people who cause ill will to arise, but there's also unsatisfactory situations, sometimes personal situations, sometimes just inanimate objects might lose, get a demotion at work, might have, you might be dissatisfied with your dwelling place, you might be, um, what is another type? That, uh, that is endless. Endless. <laughs> <laughs> endless. Uh, anyway, there are so so many types of 
problem? Imper- impersonal situations which cause ill will, distress, depression to arise. What one has to do in this case to overcome that ill will and dejection is to reflect on the, to develop equanimity by reflecting on the fact that all these problems are ultimately conditioned. But they are, because they're conditioned, they're impermanent, bound to come to an end. And even if they seem to be dragging on and on endlessly, then you can just consider that they are the maturation of one's past karma. This happens, why does it happen? Because of the deeds that I did in the past. If I frequently get ill, if I have trouble at work, if I have trouble in the family, if um, I'm living in poverty, if my investments fail, if I don't have favor with the politicians, <laughs> then you consider it's not the fault of anything external, but this is just the result of some deeds that I did in the past, ages ago, coming back. In fact, the doctrine of karma, the teaching of karma, is a way of seeing that the world in which we live is not something foreign to us, not something alien to us, not something which is just into which we've been thrown just by bad luck because there's some malicious demon controlling our destiny. But rather we can reflect that even the very situation into which we've been born, the entire course our life has taken from one stage to another is all the working out of our own previous karma, our own previous mental dispositions. This doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is the result of karma. But we could say that the principal features of our life, the real big losses, big misfortunes, as well as the big successes, big um, great fortune, all of this is the working out of karma. And even if one doesn't want to take this approach, then one could bear these unpleasant situations with equanimity and with patience by taking them as a kind of school, a testing ground for helping one develop wholesome qualities. Because you could consider, okay, that this is the objective conditions of my life, and at every point, every major point in my life, we could consider it as a crossroads in which one could go in either of two directions. If one gets angry, upset, fights back, struggles, becomes miserable, becomes resentful, then one is developing unwholesome qualities of mind. And when one develops these or repeatedly indulges in these unwholesome qualities, then they become stronger, they generate unwholesome thoughts, those unwholesome thoughts lead to improper 
speech, improper actions, and in that way one gets bound more and more tightly in the round of suffering. But one could just view this life as a kind of school or training ground for advancing along the way to Nibbana. And so one thinks all of these difficulties, all of these problems are really teachers in disguise helping me, trying to urge me to develop virtuous qualities, good qualities, which will enable me to make progress on the way to Nibbana. If there are these problems, then it's like a challenge for cultivating patience, equanimity. If there's conflicts with people, then it's an opportunity for developing kindness, compassion, sympathy for others, for developing the skill of relating to others in beneficial ways rather than by generating friction and conflict. And so in this way one could use these situations to develop the thought of thoughts of non-ill-will, all of these different types of freedom from ill-will. And then this brings progress towards the final goal. Okay, then the third opposition, that is between thoughts of Vihingsa in Pali, Vihingsa, which is here, I use the translation, cruelty, but it's more than just cruelty, but it's harming others, wanting to harm others, to hurt others. This is what might call the, it's the outcome of thoughts of ill will when the thoughts of ill-will, especially towards people, become strong enough, then they lead to thoughts of cruelty or of harming. But not only towards people, but I think especially in today's world, thoughts of cruelty are especially widespread in regard to animals. People think that they can treat animals just without any regard for their well-being or for their feelings. And so people will treat their animals with very cruelly. Isn't that so? Oh, If one just considers the numbers of animals which are killed for food, even every year, just millions and millions, even perhaps when we total them together, even billions of animals, just killed without any thought for their lives, for their feelings, for their well-being. Okay, and the opposite of thoughts of cruelty are thoughts of non-cruelty or harmfulness. Again, this is a negative term in Pali, avihingsa or ahingsa. But it, again, it signifies a positive quality. This is the quality of compassion of feeling sympathy for others who are exposed to suffering, who are undergoing suffering, and wishing to alleviate their suffering. Okay, and if one considers these two groups of three together, have we met these two groups before any place? in relation to any other teaching? 
especially the group of good thoughts. Tom Tom. I would say are not exclusive to Buddhism. I would say that one has thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill towards others, thoughts of compassion, and other religion, religious traditions too. Even in well, in some strains of Hinduism, though they've been influenced by Buddhism, one has the idea of renunciation, of becoming a sannyasi, a renunciant also developing, um, the, even they have the Brahma Viharas and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali before Brahma Vihara changes. So those aspects I'd say are not exclusive to Buddhism, though I would think that the idea of renunciation is perhaps carried to its ultimate extent only in Buddhism. It's only in Buddhism that's when really have the full liberation from the entire conditioned world. But I would still want to, I want to come back to the question where we have these three qualities, these three types of good thoughts um, in relation to what are their teachings. Somebody who has studied Buddhism a little bit should even know the answer. Wait, I don't want to get the answer from him. <laughs> Where have we seen this before? Nobody has any idea. I'll give you a hint. It's in the Noble Eightfold Path. Where in the Noble Eightfold Path? Where? Never heard of it before. Where in the Noble Eightfold Path? Savitri, you typed it. Where? Right. <laughs> 
Okay, correct. It's samasankappa, right thought, right intention. You should all make note of that so you remember. If I ever ask again, I want to see many hands go up. Don't just sit quietly, it's not right. Right purpose can be found also in modern religion, as you said. Yeah. But there is a big difference when it comes to cruelty and non-cruelty, as you have already mentioned regarding the animals. The religion of lament, they regards the human being as in the as a dominion of animals. Yeah. So, and uh, here, of course, is, therefore the, the, the turkeys don't vote for Christmas, no? I know about you. Somebody does not understand the turkey is an American yeah. Christmas uh, food. Special food, they eat a Christmas and turkey. <coughs> okay, any any comments on these aspects, these thought elements? Any further elaboration, question? I, I would like to mention something that you just touched on, yeah. and that is Ill will and cruelty seem to me so close that I wonder yeah. why they're distinguished into yeah. two separate things. I, 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 the distinction between them, I understand it, but it yeah. still seems pretty. Uh, it's actually an interesting point, and I, I don't have a ready explanation for that. I think cruelty is far deeper rooted in yeah. a way because it includes the idea of revenge with a certain deluded fiction of justice. And even when a very cultivated mind, he may look in the newspaper and see, ah, that rogue got caught. That's good for him. Here he finds cruelty based upon that idea of revenge. Yeah. And that is a little different to those simple... I mean, there are aspects of cruelty or harmfulness which are different from the will. But the question is, why the Buddha would have made it distinct factor. I think this would be a hypothesis, I mean I don't have a ready explanation, but one hypothesis that I would come up with is that at the time of the Buddha there were some religious sects which emphasized harmlessness very strongly, particularly the chief rival of Buddhism, which wasn't Brahmanism, but Jainism. And the Jains would make the practice, the Jain monks of absolutely trying to avoid harming anything in any way so that they would wear a, a little cloth before their mouths so they don't breathe in any insects. They would sweep the ground in front of them, sweeping away the insects so they don't step on any insects. They gave a great, a great deal of emphasis to this quality of harmlessness. It might be so even of some of the other religious sects in North, Northeast India which have now pretty much disappeared. So I think the Buddha might have felt it incumbent on him to include in some way non-harming as a specific factor in his path. 
maybe also the pleasure of cruelty, which is a very deep-rooted uh, byproduct of a certain kind of sexuality, uh, which is very common, and we find it in us also. Yeah. Uh, that is a difference to ill will, yeah. simple ill will, which yeah. is not so. Yeah. And also, I think in the Eightfold Path, right thought or right intention forms a kind of bridge, one might say, or a, let's say a prelude to right speech, right action. And in right action, one has abstaining from killing, which is like the ex- chief expression of harming. So I think the Buddha might have also felt it desi- necessary or desirable to include specific to give specific mention to that psychological factor from which actions of killing originate. Perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> but I find it rather interesting point that cruelty, it's a, also it's a little puzzling point, in the Abhidhamma system of the mental factors, ill will is identified with the mental factor dosa hatred, but no mental factor is specified for cruelty or harming, vihingsa. Even though it seems vihingsa has such distinct qualities of its own that it can't be simply identified with dosa. One has, for example, like differentiation is made between hatred, say envy and hatred even though they're very very similar, and envy is made one mental factor, hatred is another. But it's a puzzle why cruelty was not made another mental factor. I don't know. I think it is maybe more, cruelty is is also more connected to ignorance. Even is more spontaneous. Cruelty, ignorance in the sense that there is uh, some people take pleasure in it. Mm. I mean, people take pleasure in it, but I'd say... Like, deliberate cruelty certainly springs from ignorance, but there might be a kind of just spontaneous, deeply ingrained harming, harmfulness, which maybe doesn't... I wonder about the word cruelty. That's actually... Uh, maybe Cruelty implies to be action, and this is yeah. the distinction of intention. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm cruelty, yeah. you know, the word does imply doing something. That is so, yeah. But here it's identified with, with intention or, or mental health. Yeah. So, I'm still in C, isn't it? Yeah. And even the other, the alternative that is harming or harmful, yeah. that also implies action. It's just that yeah. one can't get, in English, I don't think that we have a satisfactory, it's injuriousness, but again, that gets its significance from the act of inflicting injury. But that's exactly what it is, it's that mental, the mental factor which manifests in harming others, injuring others. Okay, thank you. Yeah. There's another thing that I, we discussed the sensual desire yeah. uh, and the renunciation. Yeah. I think it's very important to, to emphasize that only the knowing of that the first step is to know the sensual desires, what it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
than just the, the list of renunciation from this. To, to see by analytical, this analytical way, what is the gratification of these sexual desires? Because uh, the gratification is, is uh, expected. No. So when that is analyzed, then of course it is far easier to deal with it mm. than when it is not analyzed. And I think this is also in the Mahasri Manikaya yeah. in the form of the Mahadukta Kandasri. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll go on now to the next group of elements. Okay, now we're in paragraph eight. Now we turn away from the world of the mind, or just the mental states, to the universe as a whole. The Buddhist picture of the or the sentient universe. And now we have three types of elements. Here the word datu, if we were to render it really in a satisfactory way in English, I would use the word realm. But in Pali the word is the same datu, so to be consistent we use elements. These are the sense sphere elements the fine material element or form element and the immaterial element or formless element. Okay, we usually refer to the Buddha as Loka Vidu, the one who is the knower of the world. And as the Buddha has seen the world or the universe and his with his all-embracing knowledge, he divided this world into three main realms, each of which has numerous subdivisions. The first, the lowest main realm is the sense-sphere element, the Kamadhatu. This is the realm in which the primary motivation of the living beings, the living being, primary motivation of its inhabitants, is sensual desire, desire for sense and turn. This is what runs through the entire sensuous realm from the lowest hells right up to the highest heaven of the Paranimitta Vasavati day. Is this desire for the enjoyment of sensual pleasures. The types of sense pleasures differ from realm to realm. In the hell, the desire is really just to be relieved from the intense pain and misery and torment. The animals are always on the lookout generally for something edible and for sexual pleasure. The case of the Haters, the ghosts, they are tormented by strong hunger and thirst. And so they are always looking out for something to eat and something to drink. And often they cannot obtain this on their own merits or they depend on others to offer them merits. 
which will cause <laughs> drink and food to manifest for them. Then human beings have countless unimaginable possibilities of sensual pleasure. They devise every type of sensual pleasure <laughs> from the most varied cuisine, the most varied types of music, perfumes, cologne, scents of every type. Um, even the perverse types of pleasure we have the explosion of child pornography that's people getting sexual pleasure from um, exploiting children sexually um, the most varied types of sexual distortions and then also the we say the noble or lofty types of sensual pleasure Call even the sublime sensual pleasures of truly beautiful celestial music, beautiful, magnificent works of art. Um, music, art. And that belongs all to the devas. No? But that is sort of, well, it's sort of, I would call it an implosion of the deva world into the human world. But still, physically, it's in the human world available to human beings. Those others also? Yeah. Excuse me? Those other three also? Hell, animal and ghost? Yeah, I oh, I think we should uh, demystify that a little bit. Hell can be seen. Or we have to go to a hospital, a prison, or a battlefield. The animalic life can not be seen because the ghost of the house that we know. Then the ghost world today, if you see a heroin addict having nothing else in his head than lust for this kind of thing, that is definitely something like a ghost. The humans, because that is something great because he has the possibility to have right foundation of thinking. Also, the genius, which I call the Davis. Genius. If I look in a similar dictionary and look at the there is written genius. In German, it is called Götterfunke, the spark of the gods. Anyway, I think those examples that Venable made a mention could be taken as, I would say, as metaphors for these realms. Or like sim symbols for them. But there are distinct real <laughs> realms which are quite different from ours, but which overlap in certain ways. And then we have the Devas, I've gone as far as the human world, the Deva world is the realm of the, this is the six sense sphere Deva worlds in which the beings have exposure to sense pleasures which are unimaginable by our standards or barely imaginable we could say they enjoy extremely long lifespans their bodies are radiantly beautiful they radiate light their bodies give off perfume scent naturally they have 
tremendous power, ability to fly at will, and they enjoy splendid sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, what they call the five strands of celestial sense pleasure. Okay, so that is the short tour through the sensuous realm. Yeah, in the early Buddhist texts, the very early texts, the asuras are not mentioned as a separate realm, but they seem to be included in some way within the deva world. But they are a type of being which are depicted as constantly in battle with the avatinga devas. <laughs> so just following the older model of what we call the five destinations, and we don't mention the asuras separately. They are the titans. Titans, titans. yeah. yeah. Okay, that's the sense fear element. Then the next realm. There's a big sort of a big um, obstruction between the sense sphere realm and the form realm. And the form realm is divided into some 16 subdivisions, 16 planes. But of these, the four main planes, so the principle by which they're divided is according to the four jhanas, the four meditative absorptions. So those meditators in the human world who gain jhana and who master a particular jhana, one of the four jhanas, and still have access to that jhana at the time of death. That jhana is a very powerful state of mind which generates a very powerful kusala karma, wholesome karma, which that kusala karma it has, it's naturally attracted to a different realm. Even when the meditator is absorbed in that state in the human realm, the mind is operating at a different, say, a different vibrational level than the ordinary human mind. That vibrational level of the mind corresponds to the form element. So there are four jhanas, first, second, third, fourth, and the jhana which is under the greatest degree of mastery by the meditator at the time of death, that becomes the determinative factor for his rebirth into the form element, the formula. If he masters the first jhana, but only has limited degree of skill with the other jhanas or no skill at all, 
then he'll tend to be reborn in the plane, planes belonging to the first jhana. And similarly with the second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. If he masters the fourth jhana, then he will tend to be reborn in the fourth jhana plane. Beyond the four jhanas, but beyond the form realm, there is another realm, again separated by a chasm which has to be crossed. This is the formless element, the planes of existence. Well, well, I should go, go back to the form element. I jumped ahead of myself too quickly. In the form element, the coarser types of sensual pleasure and sensual desire no longer exist. In fact, they say in the Pali text that there is no enjoyment of smell, taste, and touch, because those are the types, the grosser types of sense pleasure. There's still sight, still hearing. The beings here have physical bodies, but the bodies are supposed to be very subtle. There's no sexual distinction of male and female. All beings are the same sex, so there's no sexual desire, no sexual union. The typical activity of the beings in the Brahma realm is meditative absorption. Most of the time they sit and enter into their jhanic absorption. And yet they also, they come out from their jhanas, they interact with each other, so they also generate other types of mental states besides the jhanic mind. But the, you could say, the basic or primary activity is jhanic meditation, and the primary type of consciousness is the jhanic consciousness. In passing from the form realm to the formless realm, what disappears altogether is physical matter, a physical form or matter. In the formless realm, there's no matter at all. The beings exist here just as streams of mind, streams of consciousness without any bodies to act as the basis for that type of consciousness. For us, it's unimaginable how that can be, how there could be distinct beings without physical bodies, who have minds but not physical bodies. But that's the way it is. And there are four planes within the formless element. These four planes are called the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, and the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. The key for entering these realms, for gaining rebirth into these realms, is the development of the four formless meditative attainments as a human being the four formless absorptions. They have the same name as the realms. 
And so if a human meditator develops the meditation, the formless meditation of infinite space, he masters it, dwells in it frequently, then when he passes away, the mind will incline to rebirth in the sphere of infinite space, in which there's just this constant consciousness or constant awareness of space as being infinite, boundless. If the meditator goes further to the second level, develops the base of infinite consciousness and has mastery over it at the time of death, then the mind goes to rebirth in the base of infinite consciousness, in which one is just aware of boundless, dimensionless consciousness. If the meditator masters the base of nothingness, then at the time of death one goes to rebirth in the base of nothingness, where there is an awareness which doesn't have any kind of objective counterpart at all, or any kind of substantial objective counterpart at all. And when one goes further beyond that to the sphere of, inf of neither perception nor non-perception, masters it, then at death there takes place rebirth in the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, a realm which is supposed to be so subtle that we just cannot <laughs> describe it in any kind of, of terms or expressions. But even this is not Nibbana, not the unconditioned. Even these highest formless realms or every realm of existence within samsara is conditioned, created by the force of karma and because it's conditioned, produced by karma, eventually existence there comes to an end and is followed by rebirth somewhere else. Therefore, all realms of existence within these three realms are said by the Buddha to be dukkha, that is, suffering or unsatisfactory, because they're impermanent. Okay, that's why the next two elements, which I'll just put in quickly, the Buddha speaks of the next two elements are the conditioned element and the unconditioned element. The conditioned element, that is the Sankhita element. The Sankhita element, what is conditioned, produced by causes and conditions, this includes everything in the triple world, everything in the three realms of existence. Everything that is conditioned is produced by causes, it arises, changes while it lasts, and eventually vanishes, eventually passes away. But what is outside everything conditioned, completely free from this entire process of arising and vanishing, 
is the unconditioned element that is Nibbana. Okay, so that will cover the element. Anything? Yes, I come back to the sexual spheres of the men. Hell, animals, wolves, humans, devas, and Atura. <coughs> Some of them may, as we say, not only, it is not only a metaphor, is, but we can see these, these mental states here, but in the moment of falling, no? in the moment of death, if we are dwelling in the in the realm of enjoying our own creation, if, then we are dwelling in an upajara samadhi. And I think these worlds are equal to the upajara samadhi. The, the deva, deva world. The deva worlds are equal to the upajara samadhi. So if we if we are uh, enjoying certain things. In and we are conditioned as with a lot of genius like Mozart, we will go to this Devaloka, but already dwelling it before. Yeah, no, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Because I think somebody might be have a great creative genius, but the rebirth will take place not as a result of the you say the creative, the artistic, or literary, or philosophical, whatever, creative capacities of that person, but as a result of their karma. And so the karmic tendencies will determine rebirth. Suppose, I don't know much about Mozart's character, he wrote beautiful music, but suppose he was an angry, difficult son of, son of a bitch in his personal life. I, thought, I could imagine it's difficult for a person who can write such uh, I Astounding music to have such a quality. He took refuge in this Deva Loka because he could not bear the, the world in a way. But let's say, okay, I, I won't take Mozart as an example, but somebody might have a great creative genius, which you might say is a counterpart of one of these Deva worlds, but he might commit, he might be very rough, coarse in character, he might, well, commit adultery with many women, he might have been uh, unscrupulous in his financial dealings. In this way he's generating unwholesome karma which will tend to a lower rebirth. I don't think one could make artistic confidence a criterion of rebirth. I don't think... Uh, apart from... Rude, apart rude, from... But the there may be an in-between stage which he gets by his when Kamma Nipaka meets. It means when, when he has the Upadara Samadhi in the moment of his death. Huh? Whatever he has done before, he is redirecting to that particular world and later on he may pay the price. That is possible. And also I would be hesitant to call, say, an artist <laughs> absorption in his work as Upachara Samadhi in the oh, sort of classical. Oh. You could say that there's intense absorption, but that is not, I would not call that Upachara Samadhi really in the sense of... 
meditators in the sense of the meditative succession of meditators. I don't know because in Bajara Samadhi is where the Nibhavanas are suppressed strongly and that can be happening in a, in a, in a critical sensual reflection. I said there's more to Bajara Samadhi than the actual suppression of Nibhavanas. Anyway, these are matters which are, can go on. Are there any questions now based on anything? I think the Yeah. Yeah, that is so. Yeah, Nibbana is called a doctor. That's a good point. So that means that when it's a Nibbana doctor, it's the Asankata doctor, the unconditioned element. Well, thanks. possible that a beautiful landscape or a beautiful cluster of flowers could help the mind to settle down, become calm, <laughs> but by itself that won't <laughs> lead to nirvana unless the person has the, to say, the guidance of the Buddha's teaching and is engaged in the practice, then in that case then the appropriate environment might be just the thing that's needed for the mind to settle down, become concentrated and for insight to arise. In fact, there are stories which report that of the monks of old. You know, sometimes if they were meditating under unsatisfactory, unsuitable conditions, maybe in a rough environment, the mind couldn't make much progress in meditation. But you're sometimes seeing a beautiful landscape, or standing on a high hill looking out on the ocean, then the mind gets some inspiration, some becomes tranquil and then all of the previous meditative practice gains momentum and then boom attainment takes place. Okay, I think that we're late now so I think we should stop and continue next week.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.